Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It's late July 2020. You may actually get to see this interview in early August. But as I speak, the titans of Silicon Valley are in front of one kind of committee or other in Washington, D.C., Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, and the other multi-billionaires of an increasingly monopolized tech uh, economy that dominates the US, not only the US, but actually the global economy. Uh, But it's not just tech, it's not just the monopolists of technology that are shaping and reshaping and perhaps corrupting our world. At least according to David Dayan, he is the author of a, a very provocative and radical new book, Monopolized, which is about the way in which monopolies, not just in tech, but in communications and travel, in biotech, in military affairs, even in politics itself, is the fundamental force of American life. Uh, David, is everything in America in 2020 monopolized? Well, maybe I won't go so far as to say everything, but uh, a great number, an astounding number, of uh, the the products, goods, and services that we deal with uh, every day uh, are, in fact, in the hands of a tiny number of companies. Uh, and it stands to reason because we kind of obliterated the laws that, that prevent monopolies uh, in terms of enforcement uh, about 40 years ago, and we're living with the consequences today. Your book is analytical, um, and it's very critical of the winner-take-all nature of American capitalism. Mm -hmm. But it's also a very moving account of what life is like for ordinary people in this monopolized America. Uh, David, you you traveled around America looking at the consequences of a monopolized economy. What did you see? Yeah, uh, you know, back when we could uh, travel around the country, I was able to do that. Um, and uh, I, I gained a lot of insight through that. I mean, talking to farmers in Iowa uh, who are struggling to deal with big agriculture or talking to uh, a family in Ohio whose son uh, died of opioids and uh, started to understand all of the, uh, the, the, the different uh, small groups of companies that are involved in that transaction you get this commonality of experience. People can't maybe name it, but they know that something is wrong with the state of the economy and the state of their lives. And they know that there is this just sort of rigged system that is preventing them from living their life to the fullest, uh, not just as consumers, but as workers, as as entrepreneurs, as, as citizens. And, uh, you know, I, I tried to connect the dots and show how monopoly sort of undergirds all of this this upset and tumult uh, that uh, is is going on in these people's lives and how there's all this 
this level of control. I mean, I think that's what it comes down to. It's there, there's a level of control from the corporate boardroom that is affecting people on a daily basis. And uh, they might not be able to name it specifically, but when you lay it out to them, they completely understand it. Are monopolies aware of being monopolies or are they just behaving as if they're traditional corporations? Well, I mean, you know, uh, for the last 40, 50 years in America, the, the, the corporate America has lived by the creed of shareholder value being the primary uh, uh, directive over everything else, which is you're supposed to maximize your profits uh, for the benefit of your shareholders. And, uh, you know, one good way to do that is to, as Warren Buffett says, build a moat around your business and uh, you know, make sure that, that you're giving them something, your customers, that they can't get anywhere else. And uh, that has been the manner in which uh, uh, American capitalism has moved, particularly in the last 40 years when competition policy has sort of been taken off the field. And so whether they know it or not, these nice turns of phrases to say that, no, we have a lot of competition, like email is what they say they have competition uh, with, with Facebook, for example. Um, you know, whether they know it or not, uh, the effects are really, I think, plain to see. There's effects in uh, worker wages. There's effects in uh, quality of goods. Uh, there's effects in, in the reliability of goods, which we've seen during the pandemic. We've had these concentrated supply chains uh, and uh, you know, we can't get pieces of cloth with you know, little strings tied around them for our faces uh, because uh, that, that's in the hands of very uh, small amount of corporations to provide those to us. So uh, I think there are a number of different ways in which we can empirically really see the effects of monopoly, uh, whether or not uh, the corporations that are uh, at, the, at the top of the game uh, 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 perceive it that way. David, are they good monopolists? The reason I ask is you, you begin the book with an anecdote about salesforce.org, which is a, the nonprofit arm of salesforce.com, uh, hundreds of billions of dollar firm, a Silicon Valley software company run by Mark Benioff, who at least out here in Silicon Valley is considered one of the good guys. Right. Some people might argue that Benioff is the 21st century version of a, of a Carnegie or a Rockefeller, someone who is giving his enormous wealth back to society, or at least part of that wealth. What's your take on the argument that people like Benioff aren't all that bad? Yeah, I mean, I think this gets into some of the arguments made in uh, Ganan Girardas's book, uh, Winner, Winners Take All. Uh, and the question is, who decides where that wealth gets distributed and how it gets distributed and the manner in which it gets distributed if it's done through philanthropy after the fact? Uh, do we live in a democracy where we collectively decide where resources should be placed? Or do we live in an oligarchy where uh, someone like Mark Benioff and, and, and those like him uh, uh, you know, uh, accumulate this tremendous amount of wealth and then make unilateral decisions on, oh, I'll give some of it back here and I'll give some of it back there. Uh, I, I think the democratic system is, is much more, uh, uh, you know, it appeals to me much more. And I think most people, and uh, we see that sort of in terms of regulation as well. 
I mean, uh, uh, you know, we, we either have regulation that's democratically decided by the, the population through a process uh, that, that has standard rules and, and, and authorities behind it, or we have regulation in the corporate boardroom, which is done for the benefit of private interests uh, and, and without the public interest really intervening in that, in that equation. And uh, I think it's the same with philanthropy. I mean, either we have a, a democratic process for how money gets distributed or, or we have a unilateral uh, process decided by uh, fabulously rich people. And I, th I think uh, uh, I, I don't think the, the latter reflects the, the ideal state that America seems to believe in themselves, although maybe 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 it does in, in practicality. It's interesting, David, that we're having a conversation uh, about the monopolization of American life um, over the internet. But we're on LetHub, which is an independently owned and run uh, platform. And the publisher of your new book is um, New Press, uh, which uh, is not owned by uh, one of the large three or four publishers. How is the impact of monopolization shaping or reshaping cultural and intellectual life in America? Oh, to a tremendous degree. I mean, uh, if you're talking specifically about books, uh, close to half of them are all sold at Amazon, which gives Amazon tremendous power over the means of communication, uh, the way in which we, we get uh, information distributed. I mean, I know from my personal experience in, with this book, if, if I'm on the front page of Amazon, I'm going to have a better chance of, of people seeing it and then maybe picking up a copy than, it, than if it's buried sort of uh, 50 links down somewhere in, 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 in Amazon's website. It's the same for uh, the distribution of, of news and information, I mean, which is dominated by Facebook and Google at this point. Uh, I think it's something like 99% of all new advertising comes through Facebook and Google, and it's robbed these uh, uh, both cultural and, and, and media you know, news outlets of, of the, the sort of specialness of their audience as a way uh, for them to sustain themselves. Uh, because Google and Facebook can track everybody around the internet, there is no special audience that is special enough that, can't, that Google and Facebook can't deliver it to an advertiser. So um, what we've seen in the aftermath of that is, is uh, a University of North Carolina study that shows that 1,300 localities across America do not have a daily newspaper. Um, there are these tremendous news deserts. It's funny, I wrote something in the book uh, about how news deserts are problems for pandemics. Now, of course, the book was written a year before we knew anything about COVID-19, but um, the truth is that epidemiologists use the news to track uh, stories about where uh, sicknesses uh, arise during viruses. So, uh, I mean, the, the impact is incalculable. And, and, and in terms of cultural output, uh, you know, the fact that, that, that Facebook and YouTube, uh, uh, you have the uh, various search engines and, and, and social media sites steering people to their own content uh, makes it very difficult for you, uh, for people to get sort of uh, into that equation with, a, with an alternative uh, means of, of delivery. Um, and of course, uh, you see a tremendous amount of consolidation in the mass broadcast media. So, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and all of 
now every, every large corporation has a companion streaming site. So there's this era of peak TV, but you have to go through these monopolists in order to get yourself onto that, 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 that channel, whether it's AT&T or Amazon or Comcast or, or uh, you know, Netflix or whoever else. So, um, you know, I, I think that uh, Monopoly has sort of flattened out the culture in that sense, in terms of uh, you, uh, it being very hard as an independent to uh, come up with something unique and interesting and actually find an audience for it. Thank God then for Lit Hub. But what, what, in the age of uh, in the age of COVID, in uh, in the in the hot, terribly hot, tragically hot summer of 2020, David, what has been the impact of our monopolized economy and culture on our failure to address the virus is it, it it's not just trump's own incompetence or indifference is it i think there's been a lack a general lack of preparedness on the part of corporate america to to, to deal with the effects of this crisis uh, there's certainly been pushing uh to reopen prematurely and that's led to a lot of the surge the resurgence in cases um, you look at the $5.4 trillion that was handed out to investors through buybacks and dividends and things like that over the last decade, uh, and just a small portion of that money uh, that would have been put into uh, uh, prevention would have been uh, a, a very valuable uh, investment. Um, you look at the uh, thin supply chains, the concentrated supply chains that we have that most large corporations go through. Uh, this is a, 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 has had a tremendous uh, kind of exposure during uh, the, the, the crisis, but it was, it was present well before then. I have a chapter in the book about the, um, the, the uh, shortages in IV solution, which is really just salt and water in a bag. Uh, and we've had this tremendous shortage of it uh, going back many years. Uh, it was exacerbated by the hurricane it, that hit Puerto Rico in 2017. About half of all IV bags produced in the United States are made and manufactured in Puerto Rico. And so when that, that hurricane hit, all of a sudden, because of this monopolized uh, supply chain, uh, you, you had hospitals all across the country that could not hook up IV bags to patients. And uh, I talked to someone who, uh, whose wife was getting a chemotherapy treatment and they had to do it manually, which is a process that was used like in World War II. And he's, he's sitting there in La Jolla, California, across a bank of windows uh, at this hospital center, looking out onto the Pacific Ocean, which is all salt and water. And he's being told that we're out of salt and water in a bag. And it's just an absurd condition right. in, a, in a market economy. We're not supposed to have shortages, right? Uh, you're supposed exactly. to have anybody who is, is supposed to be able to, to, to provide a product if it's asked for. That's the, the glories of, of the invisible hand of the market. But it's being corrupted by these middlemen and monopolies who uh, have, have made it impossible to provide the, the, the things that people need in America. It's, it's really an incredible story. It is an incredible story. It's absurd. It's tragic. It's unjust. And above all else, it's, um, it's so chaotic. It's, it's, it, it reflects the profound incompetence. And, and your book deals with that kind of incompetence and injustice and unfairness from transportation to healthcare to military matters and, of course, media and technology. Uh, we could spend a lot more time talking about it. Everyone needs to read the book. But 
David, let's get on to fixes because you, your book is focused on addressing fighting monopolies. We've done it before in American history in the late 19th century, and you believe it can be done again. Yeah, Andrew, I think that's the key is that we know how to deal with monopolies. We, we put together the Sherman Antitrust Act and the Clayton Antitrust Act and, and anti-chain store laws and uh, uh, monopoly pricing laws and, and laws against predatory pricing. And, and there are plenty of laws in the states that offer public alternatives to uh, private power, things like public banking that we have in, in the state of North Dakota uh, and uh, anti-chain anti store laws uh, and things like that. Uh, we, we have the architecture to fight monopoly power. Uh, what we don't have is the political will. And uh, we see it only in bits and pieces uh, in, in, in some states or in, in some small cities or regions of the country. And that's what needs to be built. And I really think that the way to go about that is through a social movement. Uh, 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 you know, and, and, and we've seen throughout our history that that's the way in which Corporate power has been fought uh, in the 1890s in the Progressive Era. It was the Granger movement of farmers and uh, laborers and small businesses and, and merchants that uh, said, "Look, the the railroads are are screwing it with us, and and we 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 need to fight back." And and that created the momentum within the political system to make these changes. Um, we need a similar kind of movement right now. And uh, we, we saw it just a decade ago uh, in, of all places, Israel. Uh, right, you, and you have this, this excellent chapter um, on Guy Rolnick, who's actually someone I know, uh, mm -hmm. a, a, a crusading journalist like yourself in Israel who really took on the corporations. I thought that was an excellent ending to the book. Yeah, it, I mean, Guy's story really should be known more in the United States of, of what he did by building this website called The Marker, which really called out the monopoly power within Israel, which was tremendous, maybe bigger than here, uh, and then capitalizing on a social movement that happened in the streets uh, shortly after Occupy Wall Street. Uh, it was initially protesting high food prices and high housing prices, but it really started to get at the, the power of these tycoons and in a right wing Benjamin Netanyahu government, there was real changes made. Uh, uh, the best example is, is the fact that cell phone prices after the anti-monopoly laws got into place in Israel went down 90%. <laughs> so uh, this, this is possible. Uh, and, uh, you know, the fact that we're having this, this big tech hearing and uh, more uh, both at the presidential level and the congressional level, uh, people are challenging monopoly power to a somewhat greater degree. It's going to take a long effort because these, these companies have, have captured the regulatory system. They've captured some of Congress. Uh, they have academics on their side. It's going to take a huge fight. And that's why I think people power is the key to it. Uh, when I when I think of these issues in political terms, David, uh, I think of uh, Elizabeth Warren. Is she your great hope when it comes to focusing politically on the problems of a, a monopolized economy? Well, Senator Warren has definitely been out front on this. Uh, she, uh, uh, I believe, in 2016, gave uh, a a speech one of the first speeches at a, at a high level in terms of a, a high profile senator about the dangers of this. Uh, she ran a lot of her campaign on these issues. Uh, she has emboldened, I think, the Democratic Party 
uh, if you look at the party platform to speak about these issues. Uh, so she is someone that, that certainly, uh, depending on where she ends up, right? Because uh, maybe, maybe she becomes treasury secretary, maybe she becomes you know, vice president. Um, uh, depending on where she ends up, I think she could have a, a tremendous impact. And also the people, uh, uh, people who have worked with her and who were on her staff, we're now uh, seated throughout the government. Uh, Rohit Chopra is one I would mention. He's uh, a commissioner on the FTC who was a, a confidant of, of Senator Warren uh, uh, in, in the recent past. So, um, you know, uh, there, there is possibility here, but there's also peril. Uh, I mean, the pandemic is definitely going to accelerate these trends of concentration. Uh, and, and if you have these companies that have tremendous economic power that's liable to convert into political power and uh so this is, there there is no way to sugarcoat the the what this fight is going to look like but it's a necessary fight if we are going to break the yokes of control that these large corporations have over our lives david uh, alongside the, the the covid crisis uh, the summer of 2020 has been marked by black lives matter is the problem of a monopolized economy and culture, is that also entangled in racism and discrimination? I do think it is. Um, uh, there are a number of ways where you could see uh, our racial problem as tied to our monopoly problem. Uh, there was an interesting lawsuit that was filed uh, uh, by uh, Byron Allen, who's a uh, media conglomerate uh, uh, unto himself, uh, saying that at Comcast, uh, uh, black independent producers and filmmakers were 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 edged out and asked for you know uh, uh, not getting, were not able to receive channel placement, for example. Um, the decline of black businesses and black banking can be seen as a part of consolidation. Uh, as, as these sort of niche local businesses, many of them minority owned, uh, uh, get rolled under by chain stores, dollar stores, uh, Amazon and what have you. Um, uh, I, I think that, uh, that you, it, it's hard to separate uh, many of the problems, if not all of them, that we have in America from this core problem of uh, monopoly power, uh, which is driving a lot of the extreme inequality that we see in America, which we know has a disproportionately racial caste. David, finally, everyone, of course, should read your new book, Monopolized Life in the Age of Corporate Power. And it's, uh, it's rich uh, and colorful in, in terms of its anecdotes and narratives. It's not just a, a dry study of, uh, of, of economics. Uh, you are... Uh, during the crisis, you're stuck, if that's the right word, in Los Angeles. I'm in Berkeley, California. Uh, alongside Monopolize, what else should people be reading, perhaps for enlightenment or for entertainment during these strange times? Sure. One of the favorite, favorite books I've read recently is called The Price of Peace, uh, uh, Democracy, Money, and the Life of John Maynard Keynes uh, by uh, uh, Zach Carter. Who's yeah, he's a, been on the show. He's an excellent interview, and it's a wonderful book. Yeah, it's a terrific book. And also, uh, you, you know, you talk about how it's, uh, you know, you, you try to in, enliven these maybe stale economic debates with talk of, uh, you know, uh, of, of people and personal history. I mean, uh, Keynes's 
history through, uh, uh, you know, being part of the Bloomsbury uh, Coalition group in, in, in England and marrying the most famous ballerina in the world. Uh, he, has, he has a fascinating personal story uh, in addition to being a brilliant thinker and, and, and someone who transformed the, the, the discipline of, of economics. So that would be one that I would talk about. Uh, I, I also read a, a, a quite interesting book and it's a guy uh, up, in, up in Berkeley uh, named Christopher Shaw, uh, which was called Money, Power and the People. Uh, and, and that is uh, really about uh, some of the origins of these debates uh, uh, in the progressive era and uh, uh, through to the New Deal. And it really talks about the, uh, the, the way in which people practice what, they, what he calls banking politics uh, to stop the large power of what at the time was the, 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 the real Leviathan in American life, which was the banking sector. Uh, and how the, the, just the extreme uh, uh, antipathy and anger toward uh, uh, banking interest at, at that time during the, the, the numerous panics and depressions that went on from the 1890s to uh, the 1930s and how that really uh, uh, governed the response. So I think it's a nice companion to my book because it really did govern a, a, a response from the political system, including uh, politicians who were not really inclined to do anything about the power of the banking system at that time. So uh, that's another one that I read recently. Uh, I, I, I wish I could say that I've read a lot of fiction lately, but uh, unfortunately I've been mired in uh, nonfiction. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.